Hi, my name is Mark Kelly. I'm one of the leaders here at City Church Leeds, and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. We hope that it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. For more information about us, please visit citychurchleeds.net or find us on all the usual social media websites. Take care and enjoy what's coming up. Today we're starting the new series that we're doing, studying the book of Luke. So today is the first week. Can we have the the next slide? So this is the introduction week. Um, Over the last few weeks, I'm sure like you, I've really enjoyed um, the book studies that we've been doing in the book of Mark. It's been so rich and so enlightening in different directions. And this morning we're beginning a parallel journey through the gospel account of Luke. And you might be thinking, well, why are we, done, why are we doing that? We've done, we've done the gospels, but actually Luke isn't just more of the same. He's coming at the earthly story of Jesus from a completely different time, place and perspective than Mark. So it's just as if yesterday you might have been watching Le Grand Depart from any number of locations along the route or even on television, and of course bringing your own take on the spectacle, the stages of the race, your own knowledge and love of cycling or otherwise. And all that would have been entirely different to the way I saw things, because perspective is a very individual thing, isn't it? And yet there would have been facts about yesterday that we all agreed on. There would have been a record of what happened. So this morning, Mark has asked me to give the intro to our study of the book of Luke. And this is, of course, my individual take on it. So if I can have the next slide, um, this is what I'm going to cover very briefly. Something about the purpose of the book, who Luke was, and when his book was written the times that Jesus and Luke lived in, and the major themes of the book. Now, this is what I've found as I've been reading. There may, of course, be many others that leap out at you or leap out at the people who are going to teach us over the coming weeks. So this is just some of the riches that you might find in Luke. So first of all, then, let's just um, think together about the purpose of the book. Um, Can we read together from Acts 2? Just three verses, uh, verse 36 to 39, in, from the book that was the companion book to Luke's gospel that was also authored by Luke. And this is the place where Peter found himself explaining to a huge crowd of people that had gathered probably from across the region for the Pentecost feast. And he's telling them that over the last few weeks, something incredible, amazing, almost unbelievable has, ha- has happened that has changed the world forever. And this thing, this, sorry, this thing, this amazing event that's taken in place has brought in a new age, an age of God fulfilling his ancient promises, of them, of them coming to pass, an age of hope for all people, which he says has been birthed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's start at verse 36, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version, because I like that one. And this is what Peter says, Therefore, let the whole house of Israel recognize, beyond all doubt and acknowledge assuredly, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Messiah whom you crucified. 
Now when they heard this, they were stung, cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answered them, repent, change your views and purpose to accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of and release from your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and for you and your children and to and to and for all that are far away, even to as many as the Lord our God invites and bids to come to himself. So Peter is referring here directly to the prophet Joel, where in Joel chapter 57 and verse 19, it says this, peace, peace to him who is afar off, both Jew and Gentile. And that's the Bible's way of saying everybody. So the good news is for everybody And one of the ways the apostles are going to get it out to those both near and far is by having it written down, capturing the truth of what Jesus taught and did for everyone, not just the population of one small Middle Eastern region, so that they can, from the beginning, understand that this message is about repenting, receiving forgiveness, being released into newness of life and releasing the, uh, receiving the promised Holy Spirit. So God purposely engineered it that after the day of Pentecost, the gospel is going to spread like wildfire. All those people who had gathered for the feast and evidence, the coming of the Holy Spirit, are going to scatter far and wide. And then persecution is going to come to the early church, also scattering um, the first believers. So people need to know the truth and the definitive truth about Jesus because news and teaching doesn't always travel accurately. We know that. It doesn't always get there fully and clearly by mouth. So the apostles were keen to get a faithful version down, not on paper, but probably on parchment, and probably none more than the apostle Paul, who may well have encouraged Luke to write his accounts. So this is how Luke introduces his own name, and this is from the beginning of his gospel, verses 1 to 5, and I'll just read it to you. And just, just, just look for the words that talk about how he's going to do this task. Since, as it is well known, many have undertaken to put in order and draw up a thorough narrative of the surely established deeds which have been accomplished and fulfilled and among us, exactly as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good and desirable to me also, after having searched out diligently and followed all things closely and traced accurately the course from the highest to the minutest detail, from the very first to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, My purpose is that you may know the full truth and understand with certainty and security against error the accounts, histories, and doctrines of the faith of which you have been informed and in which you have been orally instructed. So Luke himself is not an eyewitness, not one of the original followers of Jesus during his time on earth, as far as we know. But his aim is to put the actual eyewitness accounts the stories of those who were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry 
and some, some accounts which had already been gathered and written down into an orderly narrative, a historical account, if you like, of everything that's happened accurately and in the right sequence. And like any good historian, he searched out diligently, he's followed all the accounts closely, he's traced accurately what took place. Tom Wright, who's written a very good book about this called Luke for Everyone, tells us that Luke was appealing to a very wide base of evidence. He interviewed many primary sources of information people who were there at the time in the minutest detail. And he's also listened to trusted storytellers in the community. We still have that oral tradition in the world today where in some cultures, news and stories and narratives, histories of people are communicated by voice orally uh, more powerfully than being written down. So Luke's listened to these trusted storytellers, these respected people who gradually codified the story of what had actually been said, or what had actually happened, and told it orally. And over time, they came to hold the official versions, if you like, and were respected to carry those stories faithfully from place to place. And that's why we've got so much commonality in the explanations of things between the Gospels. So. The difference between Luke and a mere historian, however, is this. He knows that this is a living, dynamic, ongoing story of a living, dynamic, ongoing saviour king and his people. And how do we know this? Because he tells us in his companion account in the book of Acts, Acts 1 verse 1, in the former account, the gospel, which I prepared, O Theophilus, I made a continuous report dealing with all the things which Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he goes on to share how Jesus' doings and teachers are being outworked in his followers, newly empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. So who was Luke? Well, the scholars cannot be definite, they can't be certain, but he may well have been the Luke that Paul mentions as his companion on missionary journeys over many years, who was also with him when he was in prison at the end of his life in Rome. In several places, Paul refers to Luke. He calls him the beloved physician at the end of his letter to the Colossians. And in his letter to Philemon, he talks about Luke as being one of his fellow workers. And in his letter to Timothy, writing towards the end of his lonely life in prison, only Luke is with me now. So Luke was well known to all those who knew Paul. And those who studied the Gospel of Luke may see also many signs that he wrote as a medical man which confirms to them that he's the same Luke, the beloved physician. He gives us lots of details, um, such as uh, the incident where Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick with a high fever, it says. And that, the term in the Greek that Luke uses in medical term, which the other writers don't necessarily give us. So Luke was an educated man. He was Greek and the only non-Jewish writer to be included in the New Testament canon. And he was therefore also writing for a much wider audience of intelligent, intelligent inquiring Gentile people. The most excellent Theophilus it's addressed to may have been a real person, maybe a Roman official or a governor actually involved in the trial of Paul in Rome, 
or it may just be a writer's device. The book being written for anyone who's heard about Christianity and become a lover of God, because that's what Theophilus means. And scholars also put the time of his writing between broadest 30 years after Jesus to 70 years after Jesus, but probably somewhere in between. But he was definitely writing within the living memory of key people who knew Jesus during his human lifetime and from his knowledge of key Jewish thinking and behavior that he likely got from Paul the Apostle, of course, who came from the school of the Pharisees and was a great student of the Jewish law and traditions. So Luke writes in great detail, for example, about the Pharisees. It's interesting, as you read through the narrative, you pick that up. So the Apostle Paul, of course, was a Pharisee before he became a Jesus follower. And he probably told Luke a lot about that group and about its influence on society and the arguments that they would have brought to Jesus during his time. Luke, interestingly, also describes Christian life and ministry as being that of a journey. It's likely that he travelled extensively, and he foregrounds that aspect of journeying in his narrative. Jesus is all the time being presented as one who's on a journey with his followers. He's going forward. He's moving towards Jerusalem and the cross. So the kingdom coming for Luke has that flavor of ever moving forward, gaining ground, being a pilgrim, traveling towards the goal. And that creates a real sense of momentum in his writing. So what about the times that Jesus and Luke lived in? Well, Luke is writing in tumultuous times and about tumultuous times. When Luke opens his gospel in verse 5 with, in the days of King Herod, he intends to provoke an emotional response in the reader. Herod was well known as being a bloodthirsty tyrant who came to local power in a bloodbath with the help of the Romans in 37 BC before Jesus was born. He murdered both his brothers-in-law, his first wife, and her mother. He was not a nice guy. And just before his own death, he ordered that some prominent citizens in Israel be gathered together in the local hippodrome, which I don't think was a cinema, with the command that on his death, they too would be executed so that there would definitely be mourning in Israel. So then it was not out of character at all that he had all the boy babies in Bethlehem murdered at the time of Christ's birth to try and get rid of him or that the wise men were warned by God in a dream not to go back and report to Herod about the birth of Jesus, but to leave Israel quickly and by another route for their own safety. Luke also um, talks at the beginning of his book about Caesar Augustus. So at the same time, Augustus, who was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was trying to consolidate his own power and empire from Rome. And he became... Tom Wright tells us this, that he became sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all claimants. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into an empire and declaring his dead adoptive father to be divine, styled himself as the son of God. You get the picture. So the idea of the emperor being worshipped as a divine being was thus taking hold of 
Even in that eastern outpost of the empire, people were already into worshipping Caesar in the backwaters of Israel. God was setting humanity up for a giant confrontation between the power of men and the power of God. And this was the environment that the real Son of God was born into. And by Luke's time, Christians were already being persecuted for refusing to worship Caesar rather than God. Luke also mentions Quirinius. Why does he do all these things? Because it is significant. Quirinius is recorded by the ancient historian Josephus to have been a high-ranking military leader, a Roman legate who imposed the administration of Rome in Judea, which was seen as an outpost of Syria, both before and after the death of Christ. Israel was a country under occupation. Imagine a country like Norway under occupation from the Nazis in the Second World War. There weren't pitched battles taking place on their soil, but there was oppression under enemy rule and a determined level of resistance, rebellion and insurrection going on from local people. Quirinius was responsible for making sure that the census of all the citizens of Judea took place so that all the Jews could be taxed to Rome. And Josephus says that those rebelling saw this taxation as almost like the slavery of the Jews to Rome. It was so severe. No wonder that tax collectors like Matthew were so hated. And the fact that Jesus went to eat at the home of Zacchaeus, so shocking to other Jews. Zacchaeus was a master tax collector, a regional supervisor of tax collectors, if you like, and in league with Rome, and therefore a real sinner. So this was the world that John, sorry, that uh, Luke and Jesus were born into. It was a dangerous, difficult, and desperate time. By the time Luke wrote his book, Israel was headed for a bloody war with Rome that would see the eventual sacking and destruction of Jerusalem, terrible killing. And that was what Jesus prophesied in the Gospels would happen. The end of the world as they knew it came with the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Some scholars also believe that Luke himself was a slave. He was certainly not a Jew. He first met Paul in Asia, and he was a Greek speaker, and he was a physician, a doctor, an educated man. But there were also many slave doctors at this time. Michael Card, for example, suggests that Luke is a nickname derived from his owner's name, and that Luke was actually a slave of the Apostle Paul's relative, Lucius, who's mentioned in Acts 13, who was set free to accompany Paul and to help him in his work and look after him on his travels. But whatever the facts of this, which we probably never know this side of glory, what comes over very clearly in the book is Dr. Luke's heart and compassion for people like slaves, those with no power or status in society, particularly women, and those on the bottom rung of society like shepherds who weren't even considered able to give testimony in a court of law, so low was their legal status. So now let's briefly look at some of the major themes that Luke pulls out in the Gospel. Can I have the the next slide, please? And I'm just going to talk very briefly about these because there isn't enough time to go into detail. 
But I will share uh, my notes and references with everybody so that you want to, if you want to look at these themes in more detail yourself and track them through the scriptures, you can do. So first, Luke foregrounds the importance and power of prayer more than any of the other gospel writers Luke shares on the prayer life of Jesus and regarded it as significant. So Jesus went into the wilderness and prayed all night, Luke 5, 16. He prayed before choosing the 12 apostles, Luke 6, 12. Jesus was transfigured as he was praying, Luke 9, 29. Jesus speaks and teaches about two parables on the subject of prayer, 11, 5 to 13, and 18, 1 to 8. And Jesus expels traders from the temple so that a place of prayer for the Gentiles might be reestablished there, Luke 19, 46. Luke's gospel is also the gospel of amazement. Throughout the book, he describes people over and over again being amazed, astonished, in awe, astounded, and spellbound by Jesus. And Jesus is a living paradox a person who combines completely contradictory qualities. So, he taught like a rabbi, but he was non-sectarian and non-religious in his adherence to the letter of the law. He was a teacher who taught with his own authority, not a rabbi drawing on the authority of other teachers who they had studied. Like Paul, the apostles studied under Gamaliel, the scriptures tell us. But people were amazed because Jesus carried an authority of his own. He was a Messiah king whose kingdom is not related to earthly territory and rule. He was a master who became a servant to his followers, Luke 22. He was God, became man. He was the one who gave up his earthly life to gain an everlasting kingdom. So all the way through his book, Luke juxtaposes those things, the paradoxes, the contrary nature of the way that Jesus operated, that amazed and confounded people. He totally upset the normal way of doing things. So I said before that Luke's is the gospel of the marginalized. And I want to draw attention to the fact that Luke particularly foregrounds women and their responses to and relationship with Jesus. He begins his account with two unlikely heroes, doesn't he? Elizabeth, the aging first-time mother of John, and Mary, the unmarried teenage mother of the Christ. And only Luke tells us about Anna, the prophetess, the long-widowed woman who'd spent her time in the temple where Jesus was dedicated as a baby. Luke shows us not only women healed and delivered by Jesus, but as his close followers and financial supporters. They sat at his feet and learned in a way that wasn't permitted under rabbinical law. They traveled with him on the road. They were the first to meet him after the resurrection. And they were there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, enabling the whole church. Luke tells us all this and more about women. And today, in a world which still marginalizes women in many ways, in some cultures, religions, and countries more than others, but nevertheless, 
the gospel is still liberating women, still bringing personal freedom to women. And wherever the law of the kingdom is applied, more corporately, it brings justice, status, and equality to society. Luke is also the gospel of what I've called radical reversals. And uh, Michael Card is very good on this. He says this, where those who should get Jesus, the scholars, the teachers, and the rabbis who are looking for the coming of the Messiah, who know the scriptures and purport to love God, they don't get it. And where those by rights who shouldn't respond, the poor, the unlearned, the outcast, and the sinners, like tax collectors and prostitutes, Samaritans, etc., they do get it. So those on the margins were drawn to Jesus because of his great compassion and inclusiveness. They do get him and they do respond in love to him. Jesus isn't looking for religious acquiescence. He's looking for a love response because he's all about love and hope and compassion and inclusiveness. Luke is the gospel of Hesed. Luke understands and reflects the Jewish concept of Hesed over and over again. And I know that this has been taught on in this church many times. He's bringing out the rounded nature and character of God as we understand it from the old covenant. He's bringing that into the new. Now God uses that word Hesed to define himself or that concept of Hesed many times. This is how he revealed himself to Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments, not as a legalistic and vengeful deity, but in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. That's what hesed means. It means when the person from, from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. It's a rounded expression of grace, isn't it? So we find Hesed in the Song of Mary in Luke 1, 50. His mercy, his Hesed, is from generation to generation. Hesed is to be shown to enemies, Luke 6, 35. Hesed is the story of the Good Samaritan, where it's not the religious who bless their fellow, but someone who is technically an enemy, a Samaritan. Jesus shows hesed to lepers and outcasts. On the cross, Jesus ultimately defines and de demonstrates hesed for all. And Luke pulls that out in his book. And finally, Luke is the book of the parable. He mentions them more than any other gospel writer. And he goes more deeply into their context and their meaning than any of the others because that's such a big topic in itself, I'm not really going to develop it further here, and I'm sure it's going to come out over the next few weeks, but you get the picture. Luke is nothing if not thorough. He wants those hearing and reading the parables to get the fullest possible picture about why Jesus is talking like this in a story, and what does it mean? I'll end where I began, Luke 1, verse 1. Since is as well known, many have undertaken to put in order and draw up a thorough narrative of the surely established deeds which have been accomplished and fulfilled and among us, exactly as they were handed down to us by those who are eyewitnesses 
and ministers of the word. It seemed good and desirable to me, Luke, also. After having searched out diligently and followed all things closely and traced accurately the course from the highest to the minutest detail from the very first to write an orderly account for you. My purpose is that you may know the full truth and understand with certainty and security against error the accounts, histories, and doctrines of the faith of which you have been informed and in which you have been orally instructed. So I'm going to stop there and trust that I've given you something like some dots on a page that are going to be joined up over the coming weeks to create a powerful picture of the truths revealed in the Gospel of Luke. Could you put the final slide up? Meanwhile, if you'd like to read further background for yourself on Luke, I can recommend these two books. So there's Luke for Everyone by Tom Wright, which also has a separate study guide that you can work through. And Luke, The Gospel of Amazement by Michael Card. And he's written um, a series of books on the Gospels called the Imagination Series of Bible Study Guides. I really like them because Michael is an artist. He's a musician, a composer, an artist, and he paints in pictures. And that really appeals to me as he talks about the Gospels. He's talking in a way that all of us, if we use our sanctified imaginations, can get. Both of them really accessible, thin books. Okay, so I'm going to finish there. Thank you very much. I thought that was great. In, in such a short kind of time limit that Pat had, she, she covered quite a lot and gave us a real grounding, I think, in, in the Gospel of Luke. So get excited about the Gospel of Luke over the, the next number of weeks, as you should really get excited about the Bible as a whole, because it's an amazing book. Um, but I'm looking forward to some of the themes that maybe Pat has drawn upon there that, that might come out over the next few weeks as well. We've given people quite a free reign and kind of what they're going to bring out of the, the book of Luke. And I, I, that excites me as well, because I think it's really good that we get a number of people bringing their kind of personality and their way of communicating a message to us on a Sunday morning. I think we're really, really blessed. And I really appreciate and love those, those speakers that are willing to step up and, and just share what God has put on their hearts. So, you know, if they're listening on the video when it's published, or if you're here, sat here, thank you so much for that. It's really appreciated. It's now... We are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. Also do loud and we give the best hugs we are family and in this house that means we love